Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 946. At the top of today's show, David Lorla is joined by Kansas City Royals left-hander Chris Bubich. We hear about things like growing up as a Giants fan, watching the playoffs from home as a player, and the possibility of wanting to work with a team after your playing days. Bubich also tells us about playing with teammates like Danny Duffy, Jackson Kowar, and Scott Barlow, and he and David get into an in-depth conversation about change-ups. I think the higher spin changes probably play a little bit different. You know, there's a little more of a side spin element. Maybe like with the Valdez, I haven't specifically looked at his metrics or anything like that. But I know when I play catch with my teammates or or whatnot or catchers will tell me that the ball just kind of dies. And I think that's like it doesn't get to the plate all the way. It just kind of gets there. And just as they say, you pull the string and it just kind of just falls off. After that, Jay Jaffe and Kevin Goldstein get together to talk about the legend of Dusty Baker. Jay recently wrote on Baker's career and Hall of Fame chances, and Kevin was with the Astros during the weird time of Baker's hiring. The duo also talk about the World Series Baker finds himself in currently, and some of the intangibles he has been able to bring to the table over the years. At the end of the day, you're talking about a guy who, you know, has managed 24 seasons and been to the playoffs in 11 of them. It's a pretty darn good track record. You have to, there's a certain success level at some point you got to go, you know, he's obviously doing something right. Right. You know, and the other part of that is just the fact that five teams have hired him. He's got to be doing something right. And and he does. He creates, you know, he creates a vibe. That's for sure. There's yeah. a vibe. The, the, he creates a vibe and it matters. But before these segments, I must give you my weekly encouragement to check out the Fangraphs.com store. We not only have our own line of merch, but it is, of course, the best place to get your Fangraphs ad-free membership for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is the best way to both browse a site and help us keep on keeping on. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Chris Bubich, left-handed pitcher for the Kansas City Royals. Chris, welcome to Fangrass Audio. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk pitching, but first let's talk a little bit about the postseason. You grew up, Chris, a San Francisco Giants fan. Your old favorite team lost tragically, if not a bit controversially, in Game 5 against the Dodgers. What are your thoughts on that game and the Giants not quite going as far as at least the 10-year-old you would have loved to have seen? Yeah, growing up, I mean, I, you know, they hold a, a special place in my heart. Obviously not the same as it once was, but, you know, watching that series, you know, back and forth, pretty evenly matched, obviously, with the Dodgers. And just, you know, just an unfortunate way to end it. Um, but that's baseball, you know, you, some things are out of your control like that. And But I think, you know, just the, the year as a whole for them, they... Not a lot of people expected them to be where they were, um, and they overperformed a lot of their projections and whatnot. But I think they built something that's pretty sustainable for years to come, and uh, they'll just keep getting better. But it's it's fun to watch teams uh, that play well and, and put themselves in, in good positions like that. And that game, of course, ended on the controversial check swing. Um, I have long been of the opinion that check swings are ruled swings more frequently than they should be. Being a pitcher, is there any way that you could possibly agree with me on that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, it's a, it's an unfortunate way to end that game because you, you want it to obviously be in the hands of the players. But, yeah, it's kind of a ticky-tack kind of thing to where it's just like it's almost a flip of a coin every time you every time you check with the base umpire. But, like I said, it is what it is, and you can only control what you can control for now. Yeah, you are not, by definition, a power pitcher. Uh, it's probably fun watching uh, the Giants trot out a very good pitcher who, I guess he's not a finesse pitcher per se, but he's uh, very much of a tactician. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just their whole staff. I mean, obviously Logan Webb was a breakout, had a breakout season and was terrific in the playoffs. Alex Wood was another guy who had a good year who I like to watch a lot being left-handed. And the way those guys go about it and, you know, mixing everything, using all, all quadrants of the zone. Um, there's not just one specific way they can beat you. You know, you can they can do it in multiple ways. So um, that's kind of how I pride myself or what I pride myself on when I go out there and pitch. And, you know, those are great examples to, to follow right there. Yeah. Are you watching much of the postseason or are you taking a little bit of a step away from, from the game? You know, Andrew Miller was uh, our guest last week, and he said most years it's hard for him to really settle in and watch a lot of postseason. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch it. I will say, like, I'm not completely locked in, locked in, like, every single game. Um, but I'll, I I want to stay up to date to see what's happening and not, like, on my Twitter feed. Or I don't want to catch it too late. I want to watch it live if something happens. But, yeah, I'll be – I've been watching and I'll, I'll continue to watch starting the World Series coming up here. But, yeah, I, I, I'll follow it, maybe not as diligently as I do during the season um, with, with teams around the league. But I'll, I'll definitely still be watching. Uh, I definitely was watching this whole postseason. Yeah, you mentioned, Chris, uh, we'll be watching. We are recording this on Tuesday afternoon, so the series will actually be starting tonight. When you tune in, or even maybe games that you've watched earlier in the postseason, how often are you thinking things like, man, I would go off speed here, or you know, be careful if you go in because I think he's looking in? Yeah, believe it or not, it's. Uh, I, I'd agree with you on that. There's a, there's a little different perspective watching it now versus like we talked about in the beginning, being a, a fan at 10 years old watching the playoffs. You know, some of these guys I've faced throughout the season. And, you know, you hear the color analysts talk about maybe what they would do in a certain situation and you maybe agree or disagree and like kind of think in your head, oh, I would do this or I would do that. This is how my stuff plays against this guy if you faced him before. So there's a little bit of that definitely being, you know, I'm a thinker when I'm out there on the mound. So this is, that's kind of the, the cat and mouse game that we all, we all uh, build ourselves upon as, uh, as pitchers. So that's something I, uh, I definitely do watch in the postseason. Yeah, Chris, you just mentioned uh, Alex Wood. Do you find yourself watching pitchers like he who maybe share similarities with you more carefully than you watch other pitchers? Yeah, there are definitely a, a handful of lefties, especially that I kind of you know watch somewhat closely because you know stuff is maybe similar or you know the way they attack guys is somewhat similar. I know his his slot's a little lower than mine, but you know kind of a funky lefty and you know has been doing it has has had a nice career and mixes his pitch as well and you know just stays on the attack. I mean, just a like I said, a handful of guys. Uh, I love watching Max Fried um, as well, being left-handed and the way he attacks guys. So there's a there's a whole a uh, handful of pitchers that have you know I've seen this postseason that are just you know throughout the whole season as well just attacking guys and and you know pitching really effectively because of that so it's it's fun to watch and a few of these guys Chris have a toolbox not dissimilar to yours so maybe let's talk about that toolbox uh, I think it was about four weeks ago that we ran a piece here at FanGraphs where you discussed your changeup in depth I don't think there's such a thing as talking too much about changeups so so let's let's touch on that you kill spin and velocity very well uh, how I think it's just years and years of throwing it. Um, I make sure to kind of get the the grip off my dominant fingers, which are the the index and middle finger. I'm throwing it pretty much with the the outside of my hand. Um, and then killing spin just comes from. I think that's just a feel thing um, over time. I mean, some guys have the ability to create spin but not kill spin, and kind of vice versa. Some guys are low spin guys and can't really create spin well. But I think for me, just getting it off those dominant fingers is the most important, and then just throwing it like a fastball. I think. You know, that's obviously that phrase is thrown around a lot, 
but I think, you know, taking the ball off your dominant fingers will kind of kill the ball out of your hand. Um, and then another cue I like to use is kill my lower half, kind of catch my, catch my front, front leg rather than kind of driving it into the ground as you would with a, a power breaking ball or a fastball because the changeup for me is obviously a finesse pitch and something I re- rely upon a lot. You threw uh, your changeup, I believe, 31% of the time this year. While they're obviously relievers, I know that Devin Williams was probably over 70%, maybe not 70, maybe 65%. You know, Cesar Valdez, I think, was incredibly like 75%. Could you imagine yourself as a starter throwing anywhere near that amount, even in shorter stretches during a game? There was actually one start this year. It was the beginning of May against the Twins. I actually threw, I think, I want to say it was in the mid to high 60s percentage-wise of, of change-ups. And now I knew that was probably something that wasn't sustainable as a starter going through it. But it was just a game where, you know, as I kind of went along there, I kind of lost the feel for my other two pitches and the change-up was something I maintained. So I kind of stuck with it. As the adage goes, throw your best pitch most often. But kind of looking back at that, it's probably the not, not the most sustainable way to pitch. And I think it I think as the year went along, I, I started to divide uh, my three pitches a little bit better in terms of usage because I came up a, to start the year as, uh, in the bullpen. So I was just going to you know pretty much stick to the fastball and change up being my two best weapons. But I think, yeah, as the year went along as a starter, it's something that's more sustainable. You got to mix, you got to mix. I wouldn't say it's like a, a Kevin Gosman type deal where it's, you know, it's fastball or split because you kind of know what's coming. But because I, I wouldn't say those two are as dominant as those two that he has. So I, I I don't have that luxury. I have to, to mix a little bit more when it comes to my three pitches, and then I'll add more kind of as I go along here. Yeah, I do not know that watching Devin Williams would necessarily be that helpful because he spins his changeup, I think, maybe like 2,800 RPMs while you're probably closer to maybe 16. But I think that Valdez also has a, a low spin change. You know, can you really learn anything from watching him attack hitters with that pitch? Yeah, I think so. I think the higher spin changes probably play a little bit different. You know, there's a little more of a side spin element. Maybe like with the Valdez, I haven't specifically looked at his metrics or anything like that. But I know when I play catch with my teammates or or whatnot or catchers will tell me that the ball just kind of dies. And I think that's like it doesn't get to the plate all the way. It just kind of gets there. And just as they say, you pull the string and it just kind of just falls off. It doesn't really have any like finish through the zone as opposed to like a fastball. You know, you're driving it through there and then a changeup just kind of doesn't doesn't exactly get there because the spin kind of takes care of that. So I think um, as opposed to something that's spinning a lot, um, we'll probably have a lot more, you know, arm side fade or because if you're spinning a change up pretty high, probably that the axis is pretty tilted to side spin. So, yeah, I, I, I can definitely take a lot from watching guys like him, especially as much as he uses it. But I think just just being able to to throw it where I want to is, is obviously the the main the main key, and then obviously it's as, only as good as my fastball is going to be, and I've learned that kind of throughout the course of the year. And I do want to talk about your fastball in a few minutes, but first let me ask you about one of your young Royals teammates who throws a lot of changeups, which is Jackson Jackson Coar. How similar or different is his change to yours? Different in terms of yeah, obviously they're both changeups, but they're. I'd say two completely different changeups. Uh, you were talking about Devin Williams a lot. I'd say his is pretty similar to that in terms of it's a higher spin changeup. He spins it higher than his, uh, more than his, than he spins his fastball. And I know his axis is pretty much purely side spin, and he's really turning his over. If you were to watch like an Edutronic video of it, he's he's really turning that thing over and and getting that pure pure side spin as opposed to like I, I talked about with mine. I'm 
staying behind it a little bit, a little bit more, um, and just really just killing spin, kind of having that that fading action at the end that just kind of dies when it gets there. And his just you know takes off in uh, the arm side direction um, with that spin. But I think you know there's no like right or wrong way to to do anything when it comes to to pitch. There's a lot of variation when it comes to breaking balls. A lot of variation when it comes to changeups. So, but I obviously his has been really effective throughout his his career so far, and uh, I think he'll just obviously continue to to keep throwing it because it's a lethal weapon. Yeah, Kolar is, of course, young. You are actually young. I believe you're just 24. Danny Duffy has been around for a while. Being a lefty, do you talk much pitching with Duffy? Yeah, when he was, uh, obviously, before he got traded this season, that was a guy I, you know, kind of talked to a lot, you know, just a lot of mindset kind of things. You know, he was, he's been around, he's seen a World Series, he's, he's been on some good teams, been on some bad teams. So he's kind of seen a little bit of everything throughout his career. He's also, you know, started, he's pitched in the bullpen. Um, which is something I've had already had experienced throughout my my career so far, um, but I think just just the mindset, like I said, with him, it's just kind of a you know go out there and just not to say not care about anything, but he's a pretty you know I don't want to say loose personality, but a guy who's uh, doesn't really kind of let anything phase him. So I kind of try to try to emulate that when I'm going out there, and he's a guy that's you know obviously had pretty good success throughout his career, had a had a pretty long career so far. And uh, I think, you know, getting to getting to learn from someone like that at such a young stage of my career, I mean, I couldn't ask for anything more. A bit of apples and oranges here because he is a right-handed reliever, but Scott Barlow has a fantastic breaking pitch. And, you know, your curveball is a pitch that I think some would say probably needs to be a little bit better or should you hope it becomes a better pitch. Have you talked much to Scott about breaking balls? Yes, I have actually. So we played catch a lot uh, together this year. We were catch partners for a good majority of the year. But the thing I garnered from him the most is one, I mean, he has in, impeccable command of, of all three of his pitches, his fastball, his slider, and his, and his curveball. But yeah, he's a breaking ball kind of specialist when it comes to uh, what he's doing in games. But he's a guy kind of throughout the last month of the year, I was actually playing catch a lot with uh, a slider and, and kind of getting his feedback to what he sees and, you know, cause he's, he's throwing them so well, so effectively um, in his career so far. So um, that's something going forward. Like you said, the curveball is something that, you know, didn't really perform that well for me this year. I, I spin it pretty well and all that, but at the end of the day, it comes down to commanding it and putting it where you want and playing catch with him kind of reinforces that, that hey, you can have whatever metrics you want on it, but if you can't command it and, and throw it consistently, doesn't really matter. But like I said, I threw a lot of, you know, cutters and sliders kind of trying to play around with different grips um, the last month because I knew I kind of needed something else uh, moving laterally because I don't really have that that area covered in, in my uh, arsenal. But yeah, he's just, you know, he's he's nasty when he's out there and, you know, fun to talk to as well. And your fastball is a four-seamer. And unlike your, your curveball, which does get pretty good spin, you have a very low spin four seamer. Uh, how much of an issue do you feel that is? I don't think it's an issue. It's something I definitely focus on this off season is to make my fastball a little bit better because you know throwing it at let's say ninety one or ninety two with you know below average the spin not so much because you know spin is only as meaningful as how efficiently you spin it. So I mean that's that's a big emphasis for me because I'm a pretty over the top slot, you know, I'm not really dropping down at all or too much. So I, I probably can get a, a little better vert on that on that pitch if I stay behind it a little better. So 
Um, that's something I'm really focused on this offseason. Not this, the spin will kind of take care of itself if you know your mechanics are clean. You're you're you know you're getting the ball out in front and really feeling kind of you know feeling that ball come off your fingertips. But uh, the spin, like I said, the spin is only as meaningful as how efficiently you spin it, and that's something I've really kind of realized as you know going throughout my career and you know the fastball kind of one way or the other either you know I want to throw harder than 91 92 or you know add a little bit of vert to it to where you know could play a little bit better and help uh, help support the uh, the other off-speed pitches I have as well yeah jumping back Chris uh, a little bit to what I was asking about you know watching teams hit and thinking how you would attack them which team stands out as uh, that you face this year going in thinking, man, I don't really know what to do. These guys seem to cover so many different things. Yeah, so starting last year in the short season, um, I threw against the White Sox a ton. Um, I think three of my 10 starts were against the White Sox, so they got to see me pretty frequently, and I got to see them pretty frequently. I also threw against them in spring training, um, both last year and and this past year, Um, and you know, threw a lot against them this year as well, being in our division. So at first, that was a team I had – you know, a little bit of, uh, I didn't really know because obviously there's a, that's a pretty lethal lineup they have over there. And, you know, one through nine can, can hurt you. And, uh, at first, okay. I was just kind of, okay, I'm going to do kind of what I've done before. Cause you know, I don't really know anything else. Um, and then kind of, as I've gone along, you know, guys like Tim Anderson, like I couldn't, I literally couldn't get him out last year. He would get a hit or I'd, you know, just not throw competitive pitches to him. Cause I didn't really know how to get him out. But I think, as you face these guys more, as they see you more, you kind of have a little bit better of a plan kind of going throughout. And I, I threw against them a lot better this year or a lot more, you know, consistently this year. Now kind of have an idea of, okay, this is what I need to do with my fastball. This is what I need to do with my changeup. Because as you guys have talked about, you know, the changeup is something that everybody knows I have and, you know, the book's out on that. So it's how effectively can I, not to say not throw that as much, but, you know, use the other two pitches to really support the changeup and, and make it play a lot better. Because like I said before, it's only going to be as effective as, you know, where I'm locating my fastball and, and if I can throw my breaking ball for strikes, it's that simple. So I think I was able to do that a lot more consistently against that team. And I will have to continue to do that going forward uh, because, you know, they're not they're not going anywhere in our division. So now, a change of direction here, Chris, as the clock is ticking down on our time here. And I don't know that this is really even a question so much as uh, a comment, but I was looking at your splits and was struck by the fact that your OBP against this year was 336 against righties, 337 against lefties, and your OBP at home was 336 and away 337. Wow. So <laughs> a guy who likes numbers, that sort of struck me as, wow, that's a little weird. I honestly, yeah, it's just funny. I honestly had, uh, I had no idea that was the case. Um, I know I was a little homer prone, a home run prone at the in the middle of the year, especially this year. So uh, obviously, pitching at Kauffman Stadium takes a little bit out of that because you know Pitchers Park, big outfield. We got outfielders that can run down pretty much every fly ball. But yeah, I had honestly had no idea. So that's that's really fascinating. Yeah, we like numbers at at Fangraphs, Chris. Oh yeah. <laughs> So two more things, you know, another change of direction completely. Unless I'm mistaken, you majored in communication at Stanford and have expressed interest in one day maybe being a broadcast analyst. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, at at the time, it was kind of just a, you know, kind of a rough kind of goal end goal, I guess, because, you know, the plan A was to, you know, play as long as I could or play as long as I can. And, you know, obviously in the process of doing that, 
you know, you see pretty often that, you know, guys after their playing careers go in the booth, whether it's for a specific team or whether it's for the network or something like that or analysts or whatnot. Um, so that's kind of what I had in mind when I was thinking of that. Maybe that plan changes in the next couple of years and I decide I want to do something different. But, you know, I would love to do something like that because I love talking about the game. I love talking about the ins and outs of the game. And uh, if I, if that opportunity comes comes up, you know, towards the end of my career, uh, whenever that may be, then uh, I'd probably love to take advantage of it. And if that does happen, Chris, what type of uh, analyst do you think you'd be? For instance, you know, could you see yourself on ESPN Statcast broadcast, you know, with Jason Benetti, Eduardo Perez, and Mike Petriello? Yeah, that's uh, when they when they do those broadcasts. Those are I'm pretty much tuning into those and those only. But yeah, that's that's something you know I've had a, the last few years. I've kind of had a passion for the analytic side of the game and just better understanding numbers, better understanding all that. Um, so I think that's definitely something I could see myself doing at the end of my career and, you know, maybe bringing that to even a team, like even working, you know, in the front office or something where, you know, a team, maybe I can help facilitate that technology to to field gap. If you see numbers on an iPad, maybe being that guy that's the middleman to to be able to translate that to players and, and coaches effectively. So that's, like I said, my options are pretty open and, uh, you know, whatever kind of brings itself up at the end of my career, I'd love to dive into it. And I'm sure that you would love for those options not to come into play for at least another 10 or 15 years. <laughs> that That's the plan. Play as long as we can and stay healthy. So that's, you're exactly right. That's the plan. Yes. And I think that the term uh, stay healthy still applies uh, very much to, to all of us, in, you know, in today's world. Chris, I think we are out of time. So thank you for being a guest on Fangraphs Audio. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you guys uh, for having me. It's a lot of fun to talk baseball. It's always fun to talk baseball. And I guess I would like to thank everybody for listening to uh, Chris Bubich and uh, me talk baseball. Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. We're two games into the 2021 World Series with the Astros and Braves tied at one win apiece. The Astros are no strangers to the series, but just under two years after Commissioner Rob Manfred came down upon them for their illegal sign-stealing efforts in 2017 and 2018, they're back under new manager Dusty Baker, who has helped to deflect a good amount of the criticism and anger that came Houston's way due to the scandal. I wrote about Dusty at Fangraphs earlier this week, discussing both his job security and his recently enhanced case for the Hall of Fame, as this is his first pennant since 2002. With me to talk about the venerable 72-year-old manager in this World Series, as well as his own brief time overlapping with Baker in the Houston organization is Kevin Goldstein. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Jay. I wanted to talk to you about what you've seen from Dusty Baker and, and what uh, what you can tell us about uh, what he's brought to the Astros, because it's almost, I don't think anybody really expected him to have another run at managing once he passed 70 years old and was out of the game for a couple of years. What did you think of the of the hiring? I was surprised by it. You know, the Astros interviewed a lot of people going into that. It was a very strange, very strange time. Um, you know, obviously it was, you know, this, this process really started just days after the team let go of AJ Hinch due to the sign stealing issue and the scandal and, and, and how it came down. And so, you know, there was all that hanging over it and then they started interviewing for managers. So it was, it was just a weird time. And obviously the team at the time didn't have a GM. And I think that's, an exceptionally strange dynamic where in the sense that, you know, the owner, uh, Jim Crane, that's who hired Dusty Baker because the team didn't have a GM. Jim Crane made that decision. And so 
Dusty is has done a really good job. Obviously, he was handed a very, very good team as well, but he's done a really good job. And he's a very different manager, I think, than he was in, in some past times. And, and, and I think he's been, you know, quite open to, you know, taking input and, and acting on it, input from the front office, that is, and, and, and acting on it and, and kind of combining what he, he can do with, with some of the things the front office has done. I, I, you know, I feel like, He's had a very good postseason. Uh, at the same time, I, you know, when I see his bullpen usage, I can see kind of the fingerprints of the front office all over it. And so I think overall he's done a really good job. And it's, it, you know, you use the term deflecting and I don't think that should be ignored or washed over that there certainly was a PR aspect to choosing Dusty as the next manager. And the fact that, you know, Dusty is so beloved with good reason within the industry and how, and kind of the role that could play in the Astros moving forward with the scandal being part of their legacy forever having a guy like dusty there where you know god we hate the astros but we love dusty is a heck of a better pr <laughs> way to go than god we hate the astros and whoever this new manager is so you know dusty was brought in to be a good manager but also to honestly help create that deflection that you discussed yeah i you know i i wrote about it at the time and it was fascinating because you know the astros scandal or no had the reputation of being on the bleeding edge of uh the use of analytics uh in determining you know what went on on field and so to bring in baker who i think unfairly has been sort of cast in amber as this retrograde manager to some extent and i know that like I mean, you know, we both came from baseball prospectus. You took a detour through through the Houston front office. I took a detour through Sports Illustrated where I was continuing to hammer on some of the things that bothered me about Baker's tactics. But I think, especially when I sat down to write about his hiring, tried to lay out the ways in which he's evolved. You know, he's, for example, where he was criticized, and I think rightly so, for the effect his overuse had on the careers of Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor. He got much better at managing uh, young pitchers, uh, you know, at his next stop in Cincinnati. Uh, guys like Johnny Cueto thrived under him. He didn't overtax any of those pitchers, notably uh, to the point where their careers were derailed. He got better at using young players in general, you know, with uh, uh, guys like Joey Votto and Jay Bruce thriving under him and and, and probably others. And the small ball tendencies went away just as they went away uh, around the rest of the league. We don't see a lot of sac- sacrifice bunting from from Baker, <laughs> you know. And and finally, even last year when the Astros limped into the postseason with a twenty nine and thirty one record, we saw Baker, you know, break his drought, uh, his postseason drought. It had been a long time since he'd even won a series. Some painful first round exits in Washington, I think, kind of greased the skids towards his exit, despite winning ninety five and ninety seven games in his two in his two years there. So I think it's been really interesting to see how he has dealt with, you know, what really is a changed paradigm. I mean, the Nationals almost certainly weren't working with the same level of information circa 2016 and 17 that that the Astros have been in 20 and 21. Yeah, it's definitely a very different vibe. And, and, you know, we can talk about all this tactical stuff and and some of it was tough deserving of criticism. But, you know, I feel about managers where the tactical stuff is is maybe 10% of the job. And at the end of the day, you're talking about a guy who, you know, has managed 24 seasons and been to the playoffs in 11 of them. It's a pretty darn good track record. You have to, there's a certain success level at some point you got to go, you know, he's obviously doing something right. Right. You know, and the other part of that is just the fact that five teams have hired him. He's got to be doing something right. And and he does. He creates, you know, he creates a vibe. That's for sure. 
There's yeah. a vibe. The, the, he creates a vibe and it matters. That kind of thing is, is something we need to talk about as well. And, and the tactical stuff is, is, is part of what he does. And the tactics in the past were certainly questionable. But, you know, as, as terms of creating a vibe and that kind of vibe, getting good performance out of players, I, I think he's been a very successful manager. I do think that Dusty is the kind of manager who, you know, you have to bring into the right situation. I think he would be far better on a team that is winning and or a team that is like good and close to being really good as opposed to hiring him to help bring your 63 win team forward. Right. And he's a better candidate for the, for the, for the former job. But at the same time, you know, he's been really good overall. And, and, and it's been just, I mean, obviously it's a remarkable career in baseball, whether he's the Hall of Fame or not. I'll leave that to you. But, you know, I, I think overall, Dusty Baker's managerial career, I think it's ridiculous to label it as anything but a, a huge success. Yeah, it really struck me in working on this piece. I mean, he said, you know, when the Astros clinched and people celebrated his uh, winning a division title with the fifth team, and it was like, you know, why should I have had to win with five teams? Mm. I, you know, other managers, you know, would have kept their jobs. And, and really, I mean, he left three of the four jobs he's left. He left after taking a team to the playoffs with more than 90 wins. I mean, yeah. you know, he, he, he bolted the, the, the Giants because they hadn't renewed his contract. And by the time they hadn't renewed his contract, he, realized that there might be greener pastures out there because he was he was clashing with ownership. You know, he left the Cubs, I think it was a year early after a 96 loss season. That was that was understandable. Uh, they rebounded pretty quickly, made the playoffs the next two years with Lou Pinella. He left the Reds after I think 90 wins in a wild card yep. berth and then left the Nationals after after two division titles and and like I said, 95 and 97 wins, but you know they they couldn't they they couldn't get out of the first round, but you know, I mean, I think you know Baker has has said that one of the things about his position is that it feels like you know if you're an African American manager, if you don't win at all, you're considered a failure. This is what he told Claire Smith uh, for the Athletic a few weeks ago, and and yeah, you wonder why didn't he get those extensions before he was put in that lame duck position? And even now, I mean, okay, maybe the fact that he's 72 years old and and nobody really knew how this experiment was going to go. And then, you know, with the Astros winning, there wasn't really a situation where they could uh, sit back and negotiate, Mm -hmm. but he's without an extension now. And it's, you know, I mean, you know, the Mets who are chasing anything that will uh, (laughs) raise the standing of their organization. And you hear, you know, you hear about them maybe wanting, you know, some, some Dusty Baker magic, but it sounds like Jim Crane does doesn't want to let him get away. It's just probably going to come down to a question of how much security he has. Well, it's, I mean, like we said, it's, it's, it's a strange world where, you know, Crane made the hiring and then brought in the new GM. And, and you know, obviously GMs like to hire their own manager. I think it's one of the reasons we don't, you know, that Dusty Baker is, is kind of, yeah, my puppy agrees. It's one, of the re- <laughs> it's one of the reasons Dusty Baker is out there, you know, kind of sitting there not knowing what his, what his situation is at the end of the season still. And, and, and even though they're in the World Series, and I'm kind of fascinated to see how that turns out because that that's that's a real power dynamic not just with the ashes but with right. every team between the gm and the owner and who's going to make the call there and it's, it's going to be an interesting thing to do to see and to see who wins there and you know dusty obviously is is 72 years old and and is not going to be managing forever but I, if, if you take your team to the world series you certainly deserve to come back right Absolutely. Honestly, I think the Astros would be silly to let him get away because the dynamic there is it seems to be working very well. And, and you know, it's like you said, the, I think the job has evolved such that, you know, we focus on the X's and O's because we can count the X's and the O's and quantify. I think one of Dusty's weaknesses, for example, I believe it was Rob Arthur at Baseball Prospectus, or maybe it was for the ringer. The way like one of Dusty's weak areas has been aligning his best reliever 
receivers with his highest leverage situations. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as we've seen, he's done a really good job so far in this postseason working around some some shortages in the rotation, uh, some very short starts, uh, the injury to Lance McCullers and, and before that, Zach Granke. And obviously, they don't have a Justin Verlander this year. And this has been a very inexperienced rotation. And he's shepherding through some some very tough spots and uh, really leaned on that bullpen. What have you what have you seen in that regard? I think we saw it last night where, you know, obviously the the Astros were up and had a solid lead, but still needed to secure that victory, had an off day the next day, you know, it's, it's a travel day today. And so, you know, he had his whole bullpen in front of him, he could use its best relievers. And, you know, in the eighth inning with a big lead, that's when Ryan Presley came in, because that's when three, four, five was coming up, right? And so right. With, with Albies, Riley, Solaire coming up, he went to Ryan Presley in the eighth. And, and, and that, that Graveman pitched the ninth. And I think that's, that was very telling. That's the kind of thing, obviously, you would not have seen Dusty do in the 1990s, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so you know, he's, he is using his bullpen smartly. And he's, you know, he's had a, I think, a wonderful postseason in terms of, of managing innings. And, and, you know, I actually, you know, I think Jason made this point during a, a live stream last night. He's used all his relievers. Like he's not leaning on just three dudes. Right. Which we've seen, like, you know, for example, we've seen Snicker do and, you know, and it's worked well, obviously they're doing quite well. But, you know, once you get to the sixth inning, you know what's happening, right? You know, you're going to see, you're going to see Jackson, Matt, second Smith and in, in some order and, and usually that order. And, um, you know, he's used all his relievers depending on the situation and, and also, you know, knows and has been given a matrix uh you know of their strengths and weaknesses and what their best envelopes are you know in terms of who's coming up and, and he's followed it well yeah tell me a little bit more of that about about you know the dynamic of just how much of this stuff not just for baker in general but your your, your observation of you know analytically inclined front offices and managers because i think you know, we still, uh, you know, I hear this from, you know, fans of, you know, a lot of other teams. I think Dodgers probably most because that's the team I follow the most closely, Yankees as well. You know, where so much of the blame for what goes wrong, choosing this reliever or this pitcher there instead of this pitcher falls on the manager when this is really kind of a collaborative decision, you know, in terms of giving, you know, I, I guess to use Dave Roberts's term, determining those lanes uh, for right. those specific pitchers. I, you know, it's funny. I think Dave Roberts is the perfect example. And Dave is, Roberts has gotten a ton of flack for how he managed this postseason. And I, you know, like you said, I really think you should just blame the team because, you know, it was clear that the team influence and in how the pitching was being uh, deployed was very much, you know, kind of being done as much by the front office as it was by Roberts himself. You know, if you remember before game five of the, of the DS with the Giants, you know, all of a sudden there was a swerve like an hour before the game and they were just going to start Corey Knable in a, as, a, as an opener. And, you know, in the, in the pregame presser, Roberts made it pretty clear that it wasn't his idea. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, he said the quiet part loud, if you will. Right. You know, so he said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said, yeah, no, there was a vote. We're going toward, toward Knable. They said, how did you feel? He said, I only had one vote. And, it, you know, pretty clear <laughs> that, you know, how, how it was working there, you know, and that kind of thing does happen. I am a, you know, a, a still a big believer and, you know, I am influenced by, you know, my time with AJ Hinch, who was very open to these kind of suggestions, but at the same time, in my mind, a front office has to have a really good relationship with a manager, has to be able to have really open conversations with a manager. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I, I am of the belief, and maybe I'm old school at this point, and, but I was also spoiled by, you know, how good AJ was with the information. Just like give them the roster and they manage the game. Like that's how I always, that's what I right. think is a good way to go, but I don't think that's the way most teams go at this point. Yeah. So what do you, what do you expect from the rest of the World Series? Do you do you think Houston's in a strong position or do you think that they are behind the eight ball now with the Braves heading home uh, having stolen a game quote unquote uh, on the Astros field? 
Oh, who knows, Jay? I got to stay on brand and say it's baseball. And we have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, I, it's, I think, I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the Braves manage games four and five. You know, obviously we saw, uh, you know, we know what happened in game one with, with Charlie Morton and being, you know, done for the World Series and we're not going to see him again. We know that, that they're going to go with Anderson in game three and then how they roll with game four and game five will be very much dictated by what happens with the final score of game three and ultimately game four is you know whether they throw a bullpen game whether they utilize drew smiley or somebody else I, i'm kind of fascinated to see you know what their pitcher use becomes and i, I think i think snitker's done a, an excellent job when he's had to swerve when he's had to improvise right. and, and we saw it in game one when morton departed and all of a sudden you know aj minter a guy who averaged less than an inning per appearance is more of a situational guy who has suddenly become a bulk guy in the postseason all of a sudden you know, got him 10 outs. He needed 20 outs when Morton left. He, had, he was like, I got 20 outs still, you know, and he got, he got eight of them from Minter. And it was, it was, it was a huge thing. And, and those eight outs set him up for his, his usual kind of rote last nine out bullpen usage. So I, I think that's kind of the most interesting, you know, piece of this that the Astros are going to go with Garcia in game three. And, and I think they're in the same position. You know, what they do in games four and five will be very much dictated by the final score of game three. This entire postseason, I think, has been defined by pitching usage and, yeah. and how teams are using their arms. And, and I, you know, there's a lot of, you know, pearl clutching and, and wailing and gnashing of teeth over it. I don't think it's a permanent thing. I think it's a result of, of it, it's still kind of overflow from 2020. And these dudes are gassed like they've never been gassed before. So it, it's, I think that's the most interesting thing is like, what's going to happen? Like, all we know right now is game three is Garcia versus Anderson. And after that, it, it's, it's kind of like, we'll see. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, both of these guys, uh, Snitker and Baker have been managing their asses off. I think back mm-hmm. to the uh, game four of the NLCS, which was the Braves bullpen game and Jesse Chavez opened. Nobody expected that, that him, him to be the choice. Uh, and then Drew Smiley gave them three and a third innings, uh, heroic innings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he ended up getting charged with two runs, but the Braves did a good job of, of, of touching up Julio Urias by that point. And, you know, his, his job was just to hold down the fort and get it, get them into the, into the later innings. And, and he, he did that just fine. So really, I, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch how these guys do it. It's interesting. I'm, I'm, as you, as you were speaking, I pulled up our playoff odds, our playoff odds, the uh, overall odds have Houston with a 55 to 45% advantage. Our game by game zips odds, which, which are run a bit differently on the other hand, have the Braves with a 62% chance and the Astros with a 37 and a half percent chance. So I guess what we're saying is we don't know. Know any more than you do? We're just gonna have to wait and see here. Yeah, I have I have a coin on my desk. I can grab it and flip it if you'd like, <laughs> you know, and, and and make a call. I, it's 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 you know, it really is true, and and nobody likes to hear it, but it really is true. Like if if anybody telling you with any certainty what's going to happen in a playoff series is is lying to of both course. you and themselves, yeah. Of course. Well, I look forward to seeing what happens. I look forward to seeing sure. how, how these managers do it. Kevin, thanks so much for chiming in on on Dusty Baker and on the World Series for FanGraphs Audio. I'm Jay Jaffe. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Chris Bubich for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend. It helps us out. And check out the Fangraphs.com newsletter. It's the best way to keep up on everything we have going on over at the site. Enjoy the rest of the World Series, and we'll talk to you next week.